All right, ladies and gentlemen, you are locked on Falcons. I'm your host, Aaron Freeman. And today we're continuing our year in reviews of each position group, continuing with the offensive line, talking about who stood out, who didn't, and how the Falcons can upgrade this position group heading into the offseason. You are locked on Falcons, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. So, guys, you know me. I'm Aaron Freeman. been covering the Falcons for many years, formerly at Falcfans.com. RIP, still going strong on Twitter at Falcfans, writing weekly content for the Falcoholic, the SB Nation website for the Atlanta Falcons, and, of course, the host of this illustrious Locked On Falcons podcast, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast, right here on the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And I want to thank everyone that makes Locked On Falcons their first listen each and every day. And of course, Locked On Falcons is free and available on a variety of podcast platforms, including Apple, Odyssey, Google, and Spotify. And of course, now a free and available on YouTube. Make sure you hit that subscribe button when you check out the Locked On Falcons YouTube channel. So today we are continuing our year in reviews going position by position. We've already done most of the offense with the exception of the one area of the offense that I think most of us agree was the biggest problem for the team last season, which is the offensive line. Uh, and we'll sort of talk about where that unit ranked league wide. And we'll get into some of the individual standouts as well as uh, the those individuals that did not stand out as well as getting in um, to uh, how this unit can be improved this off season, because I do think uh, this unit really with the way that Arthur Smith wants to play offense. And we will talk about this for several weeks and months upcoming with sort of the, the vanilla approach, conservative approach, whatever you want to call it, that Arthur, Arthur Smith showed in 2021 that it really kind of requires the offensive line um, to play at a high level, a much higher level than what we saw throughout the 2021 season. So we'll see if the Falcons can improve there. Uh, and they'll certainly have to play better than they did this past year. Cause when you look at various websites like PFF, uh, they ranked the Falcons offensive line 27th overall, although their co- collective grade for the Falcons run blocking was six best in the league. Their collective grade for the pass blocking was 31st best in the league. And, you know, the PFF grades in that regard, in terms of cumulative grades in that regard, tend to kind of get a little skewed if you have a couple of guys that really stand out or don't stand out in, in one of those areas. And, and we'll see as we get into the individuals how and why the Falcons seem to have such a high run blocking grade and a low pass blocking grade. But we do know that when we look at the pass blocking in particular, it wasn't great. Uh, and that's probably our accurate reflection in terms of that 31st overall, because when we look at Matt Ryan and how much he was pressured this season, if you look at the full-time starters, so you throw out the Cam Newtons and the Jameis Winstons uh, of the league, um, you know, Matt Ryan was the most pressured starter in the league, according to PFF, uh, this past year. If you include some of those guys like James Winston and Cam Newton, he was fifth most. But either place is not a place that you want to be. I don't put a whole lot of stock in ESPN's uh, sort of win rate metrics as much as others do. But, you know, for further context, they had the Falcons pass block win rate at 26 and their run block win rate at 29. So painting a, a different portrait than what PFF says about the Falcons run blocking. If you go to football outsiders uh, and look at their adjusted line yards metric, which is trying to look at a per yards 
yards per carry uh, way of, of assessing the offensive line and separating that from the running backs. Uh, the Falcons were 20th in adjusted line yards uh, in terms of their run blocking. They were dead last in the league when it came to short yarded situations in that power success metric. Uh, they were 25th in terms of having the most number of yards that went for negative yard yardage. Uh, Football Outsiders adjusted sack rate had the Falcons at 20th, so not the worst offensive line when giving up sacks, although probably some of that is on the quarterback, uh, meaning that the you know Matt Ryan uh, prevented that team from looking worse in terms of giving up sacks uh, than they did. And the all-important directional running, uh, according to Football Outsiders, the Falcons were a team that ran among the most frequent uh, when it came to running to the left end or the left tackle spots, which we'll consider to be outside to the left or to the right um, in terms of right end and right tackle. Uh, they were frequent in terms of frequency. They were in the top five in both uh, all four of those directions. Um, but running left in, they were 23rd in adjusted line yards. They were 32nd in runs behind the left tackle in that metric while running to the right. Right in, they were seventh in adjusted line yards and sixth when running right tackle. So, again, going back to the point you heard me make many times in the podcast, the team was bad when it came to running left. They were good when it came to running right. And thus why we sat here and wondered why didn't they run the ball to the right a little bit more than they did. Uh, in terms of runs up the middle, the Falcons ranked 14th in adjusted line yards, so about league average. But in terms of frequency, they were dead last. And that speaks to how Often the Falcons were relying on the outside zone uh, running scheme. One of the things I noticed when going through my second pass of the film, um, you know, in recent weeks, and I didn't wind up watching all of the games, but I, I tried to watch as many as I could. Uh, it, it seemed like the Falcons were heavily reliant, particularly early in the season, on the stretch play, uh, which is the staple of the outside zone running scheme. They ran, you know, they sprinkled in some crack tosses there, probably not as much. I think that was a, a big reason of why uh, they were so effective, particularly running to the right with those crack tosses. And then probably should have ran a little bit more if you ask me. Um, but, you know, they basically had four run plays for the first month of the season. It was mostly stretches, a sprinkling a crack, crack toss uh, as far as their staples as outside zone went. And then they mix in a decent amount of inside zone uh, and an occasional duo, which is basically an inside run that is more of a gap oriented. Now, as the season wore on, they did start to expand the run game a little bit uh, where they did mix in some counters and, and other run plays uh, and expanded it. So they started off very simple. And again, that sort of is a testament to what you heard me say during the season in terms of an analogy where the Falcons started out, you know, Arthur Smith was a chef starting up a new restaurant and had a very limited menu early on and started to expand a little bit more, having some lunch specials. And we'll see if he can continue to expand that going into year two. And maybe that will lead to uh, greater success when it comes to the Falcons uh, run game. But in terms of that outside zone stuff, PFF does chart zone versus gap runs. Uh, and the Falcons were third most in the league behind just Chicago and Minnesota in terms of the percentage of zone runs that they had this past season. But those zone runs do include, include inside and outside zone. Uh, and then when you look at football outsiders in terms of the directional running and, and count those left end and left tackle and right end and right tackle runs as outside runs, uh, the Falcons, again, evidenced by the fact that they were dead last in the league in terms of the frequency of runs up the middle, is a testament that they were running a lot more outside zone 
than those other teams like Chicago and Minnesota and other teams around the league. Uh, so uh, they were very reliant on the outside zone running scheme. And we'll see if the Falcons change that. Now, uh, before we move on, let's talk about the individual players and where they ranked in terms of their PFF grades. Jake Matthews uh, had a 71 overall grade, which was 32nd among 68 offensive tackles that had at least 500 snaps this past year. Uh, Kayla McGarry was uh, 50th with a 63 overall grade. Uh, Matthews was 56 in terms of run blocking. McGarry was 22nd. Matthews was 19th uh, amongst pass blocking. Uh, McGarry was 62nd. Uh, Matthews was 13th in pass blocking efficiency, and McGarry was 52nd. And PFF also has this true pass set metric, which basically excludes all plays that have less than four rushers, that are play action passes, that are screens, that have short dropbacks, so presumably less than three steps and have a time to throw of under two seconds in order to sort of get all the data out of uh, the set that would basically, you know, is scheme kind of benefiting offensive linemen uh, so that, you know, this is more a testament of how these guys can hold up better on an island, so to speak. And in terms of true pass set grade, Jake Matthews was 17th among the tackles and McGarry was 50th uh, in terms of true pass set efficiency. McGarry was 34th and Matthews was 12th. And so that speaks to the the difference between efficiency and grade um, is what is sort of a quantity versus quality grade. And you heard me talk about that throughout the season when it came to McGarry, where when you look at his efficiency uh, in that true pass set, he was 34th, which is basically middle of the pack out of 68 tackles. But that grade was much lower at 50th. And that speaks to what you heard me say a lot, which was it wasn't that McGarry was getting beaten often, but when he did get beat, it looked very bad. So that's the quantity was that he wasn't getting beat a ton in those true pass set situations. But in terms of the quality of those reps, it was particularly poor due to the low grade. So let's talk about the guards. Of course, Chris Lindstrom had a really good season, 84 overall grade, which was sixth out of 70 guards ranked. Jalen Mayfield was had a 49 grade, and that was 66 out of 70 guards. Uh, Lindstrom had a uh, run blocking grade that was fifth best. Uh, Mayfield was 29th. Lindstrom had a pass blocking grade that was 32nd. Mayfield was dead last at 70th. Uh, Lindstrom's pass blocking efficiency was 26th, and Mayfield's was again dead last. Uh, Lindstrom's true pass set grade was 12th. Mayfield was 69th, so second to last. And Lindstrom's uh, pass true pass set efficiency was 25th, and Mayfield was once again dead last in that category. Moving on to the center position, Matt Hennessy had a 77 overall grade, which was second best behind Lindstrom among the group. It was the seventh best among 33 centers in the league this past year. Uh, his run blocking grade was second best in the league. His pass blocking grade was 30th, so fourth worst. Uh, his pass blocking efficiency was tied for 31st, so bottom three. His true pass set grade, uh, Hennessy's that is, was 21st, and his true pass set efficiency was 27th. So Again, you have this going back to what I said earlier about PFF's sort of cumulative run block and uh, pass blocking grades. The reason why the Falcons were so high is because they had essentially four offensive linemen that all graded out as above average run blockers and two in particular, Hennessy and Lindstrom, that graded out as quote unquote elite run blockers uh, in terms of, you know, being top five for the respective positions. And then they had, you know, basically 
three offensive linemen that were below average in terms of pass blocking uh, with Mayfield being especially bad, Hennessy being especially bad uh, for the respect and, and McGarry also being pretty bad as well, bottom 10 uh, in terms of pass blocking. And so that's why their pass blocking cumulative grades were so bad and their run blocking grades were cumulatively so high. So uh, we'll get more into those individual players and where they're at talking about guys like Lindstrom and Matthews and how they're solid for now, um, but then sort of talking about the other three starters and whether or not the Falcons are going to need to be looking to upgrade those guys into the near future as we continue today's Locked on Falcons podcast. But before we get there, guys, I do want to thank you for making Locked on Falcons your first listen. And as usual, I have a recommendation for your second listen. And why not make it one of the national shows here on the Locked on Podcast Network, including Locked on NFL? I'm, you know, Admitting that I'm recording this before uh, the outcomes of those conference championship games are, are known. So whether it's locked on NFL, Peacock and Williamson, uh, you locked on Bengals, locked on Chiefs, locked on Rams or locked on 49ers. Go check out those shows Monday uh, to see what's next for those teams and how the the losers of, of these conference championship games, how they can get better and all that for various stuff. So get into that. And of course, all those shows are free and available in the same podcast platforms that you can find locked on Falcons. So it's also a new year. And that means more people are doing new year's resolutions. And if yours is about getting fit and eating healthier, make sure you include a built bar in your plan. Built bar is the protein bar that tastes better than a candy bar. Uh, eating healthy can be tough because it's boring and it's not particularly fun, but built bars make eating healthier easier to stick to your new year's resolution because it tastes so good. You'll want to eat it. Um, and even if you're not necessarily a huge fan of working out, at least eat something that tastes good and that is good for you. And that is of course built bars that are low in sugar and calories and carbs, but high in protein and fiber. And they also have various new flavors like churro puff coconut brownie chunk, which was voted last year as the top flavor in their uh, built bar March madness tourney. Uh, so go check out those flavors as well as tried and true's like coconut almond, peanut butter, brownie, salted caramel, etc. at built.com. And when you do use a promo code LOCKED15, then you'll get 15% off your order. That's promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at built.com. So let's talk about, you know, the Falcons five starters from best to worst, uh, starting with, of course, Chris Lindstrom, who's the best. And as far as my assessment of Chris Lindstrom, he, he seems to be well on that Ali Marpet track. Marpet was the player that I comped Chris Lindstrom to in terms of his eye level coming into the league. And Lindstrom played at a really high level, arguably a Pro Bowl caliber level, but does not get the acclaim. And it's a similar story for Ali Marpet, who just recently in year seven uh, was voted to his first Pro Bowl of his career. Um, and that's in large part due to the shine that he and several other Bucks offensive linemen have gotten in recent years, thanks to the presence of possibly retired uh, Tom Brady. Um, but it's not as if Marpet's play has increased dramatically in the Tom Brady years. He's basically still the same top 10 caliber guard that he's been basically since coming into the league. And it's kind of a similar situation with Chris Lindstrom. And we'll just sort of have to see if Chris Lindstrom gets the acclaim that he deserves sooner rather than later. Uh, but shout out to Robert Mays of the athletic football podcast who put him, put Lindstrom that is on his all pro team uh, this past year. So at least, you know, if you know, you know, uh, in terms of the people that you, you trust uh, seem to recognize Lindstrom as one of the rising stars at the guard position in this league. Uh, talk. Let's talk about Jake Matthews. And if you look at Jake's grade, it's a little bit down from the last couple of years where we've seen Jake play at a really high level. And maybe that causes some people to be a little bit more concerned that Jake may be at the beginning of a decline. 
I don't know if I would be too concerned. His grade uh, really kind of dipped mostly because of a really bad performance against Carolina in week eight and then a rough season finale against the Saints. But if you look at his pass blocking efficiency, it's basically the same as what it was in previous years. Uh, so basically he had a, a couple of games where he had a, a few too many bad reps as opposed to the number of bad, you know, losing reps that he had. Um, but, you know, the question about Jake is going to be longevity because he's starting to get up there. Uh, he, he'll be 30 this year. Um, and look at the past where the Falcons have decided to move on from some of their longtime starting offensive linemen, typically age 31, whether we're looking at Justin Blaylock or Tyson Claybow was the last years that they were in Atlanta. Age 30 was Ryan Schrader, although I think that was kind of accelerated due to injuries, uh, if I say so myself. Um, and then you look back, you know, go back even further to Todd Weiner, his last season as a full-time starter before injuries started to, to affect him was also age 31. So it does seem with Jake being age 30 heading into 2022, too, that, you know, we can realistically expect him to have two more good years. Uh, and then beyond that sort of is up in the air. But I do think Jake can be expected to play at a reasonably high level for the next two seasons. But then the Falcons at least are, you know, that means that the Falcons are going to have to start planning for the future. But I don't think that's as pressing an issue right now as it may be, you know, going into the 2023 offseason or potentially the 2024 offseason. So we'll sort of cross that bridge when we get to it. As far as Jake's performance this year, still playing at a high level again as a pass protector. The run blocking still needs a lot of work, but again, in terms of the big picture stuff, that's more of a nitpick. We're paying Jake premium dollars to lock down that blind side for Matt Ryan, and even if his run blocking isn't great, which it wasn't this year, and, and that's a big reason why the Falcons struggle to run the ball to the left, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, it's, it's a small price to pay uh, for the bigger contributions that Jake is providing in terms of pass protection. Uh, let's talk about Matt Hennessy, who, you know, Sort of my official statement now, despite spending many, many months on Caleb McCary Island, I do think Matt Hennessy probably was the Falcons' third best offensive lineman this year. Um, I don't necessarily think Hennessy's run blocking was as good as PFF's uh, run blocking grade indicated. I know ESPN also had him in the top 10 among centers in run block win rate. Um, I think Hennessy certainly probably wound up being after going through a second pass of the film, probably was the Falcons second most effective run blocker, but I don't necessarily see him on that level as a top 10, top five guy, top two guy as PFF put him in that regard. Um, but he certainly got the job done for the most part in terms of the run blocking was considered. So I'm not, you know, while I'm not as high on him as run blocking as, you know, those websites are, uh, I do think for the most part, he did his job in that regard. Um, it's the pass protection that is a much bigger issue with Matt Hennessy. And I do wonder to a certain extent, if we're going to see him uh, be challenged this upcoming summer by Drew Dolman. The second pass of film made me appreciate Drew Dolman's performance and limited opportunities more than I did initially. Uh, and so I do think, you know, the Falcons uh, could realistically, um, you know, go into next summer with those two guys competing for the starting spot and, and thinking that the power of competition will elevate uh, the center position going into next season. I think you can certainly make a case again, based off of a very limited sample size, but you can certainly make the case that Drew Dolman might be a better run blocker and pass protector potentially um, than Matt Hennessy is. But again, you're, you're comparing very different sample sizes. So it's hard to definitively say, and that will be borne out 
through competition. So I, I do think, uh, although we'll circle back to this issue and talk about whether or not the Falcons should or could upgrade the center position this offseason, I do think there is a possibility that they may wind up, quote unquote, settling uh, for those guys competing for the job next year and hope that that leads to a better play from the center position. Let's take our return trip to Kayla McGarry Island, uh, where I spent too much time this summer, uh, or I'm sorry, this winter. Uh, but, you know, I stand by my assessment that McGarry's not nearly as big an issue as another player that we'll talk about uh, coming up. But my second pass of the film did leave me to question his future here in Atlanta a little bit more. Um, you know, while he did finish the year with a solid run blocking grade, I do wonder uh, the more and more I watch if he has what it takes to cut it uh, as an outside zone run blocker. He just does not necessarily have the athleticism despite testing really well at the combine three years ago, but that level of athlete just does not show up on film with, in terms of his lacking a bend and flexibility and looking very stiff. Um, and so that's part of the reason why you heard me for better, the better part of the last two years, believe that Matt Gano could potentially be that upgrade over Caleb McGarry. And unfortunately, if you didn't hear the news earlier this week um, or last week, uh, as most of you are listening to it, that the Falcons have decided to part ways with Matt Gano. He wasn't impending free agent. So it's not like they, I don't, you know, that, that whole thing, like they decided his release or whatever the case may be, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but essentially regardless of whether he's been cut or whatever the case is, he is not going to be back with the Falcons next year, recovering from at least based off of what Ian Rappaport said, a shoulder injury when previously we were speculating about it, possibly being a neck injury. So we got a little bit more information on that front, but, if you've been listening to the podcast over the last month or two, you've heard me say several times that I did not uh, expect Gano to be back with the team. And this now just sort of confirms it, which I think is a shame because I do think Gano had the potential uh, to to be an upgrade over Caleb McGarry as an in-house option. And the Falcons are going to have to upgrade over Caleb McGarry, which is certainly a possibility this offseason. They will have to find it elsewhere on the open market or in the draft. But I do think Gano did have a much more natural fit uh, because he does have that legit high-end athleticism to really fit in this outside zone scheme. And unfortunately, injuries sort of curtailed any opportunities he's had over the last three years to really showcase that uh, and win that job permanently. So, uh, you know, we wish Matt Gano the best. Unfortunately, uh, his future is no longer in Atlanta. So I hope he does the same thing that so many former Falcons offensive lineman in my disgruntled self uh, goes on like Wes Schweitzer and Daniel Brunskill and a number of other players and goes on and has a lot more success elsewhere uh, to, you know, stick it to the Falcons. Once again, that seems to be the pattern. Uh, so uh, we'll probably wind up seeing Jason Spriggs brought back uh, as the Falcons swing tackle. Um, but obviously he's not going to necessarily challenge Caleb McGarry for that starting spot. Like at least theoretically Gano, could have done. So if the Falcons are looking for that, uh, they'll have to find it elsewhere. And again, we'll circle back to this topic uh, towards the end of today's episode. So let's talk about the player, uh, Jalen Mayfield. Um, and, you know, I don't think Jalen Mayfield is going to be the player that's going to challenge uh, Kayla McGarry. As I said, when we drafted him, his athletic limitations are even greater than what Kayla McGarry's are. So I don't feel like he's really an option there. And no, I don't necessarily think Kayla McGarry would be significantly better as a guard. I like, I'm more open to that idea today than I was maybe a year or two ago. Uh, but I do think if you're going to put McGarry as a guard, you would have to change your blocking scheme and run a lot more inside zone and inside gap stuff. And then you would have to then make a change at the center position. Cause I don't think Hennessy or Dolman would thrive in that type of system. You have to get a, a much bigger, burlier guard, or, I'm sorry, center to fit that scheme. And while McGarry moving inside the guard would probably 
probably mask some of his pass blocking issues. I still think some of those, that lack of athleticism and bend and flexibility would cause him to struggle probably a little bit more as a run blocker than people assume. Because again, inside it's really about low man wins and, and leverage and whatnot. And being six, seven can also be a detriment in that regard. So when it comes to Jalen Mayfield, let's circle back to him. Um, you know, he had a very rough season, right? And when you look at the PFF data over the last 12 years, and I went back and looked at all the offensive linemen going all the way back to 2010 that had at least 300 plus pass blocking snaps, um, you know, Jalen Mayfield had a historically bad season. And that resulted in looking at nearly 2,000 offensive linemen, 1,985 to be exact, which is basically all five starters for all 32 teams across 12 years. Uh, in terms of pass blocking grade, Jalen Mayfield, among those 1,900 plus guys, nearly 2,000 guys, ranked second to last in terms of his 2021 pass blocking grade. The only player that had a lower pass blocking grade that played at least 300 plus pass blocking steps was center Billy Price back in 2019 with the Cincinnati Bengals. Among guards, Jalen Mayfield was the worst guard. Uh, Mayfield was credited by PFF for giving up 11 sacks this past year. That tied for the most in that 12-year data set uh, given up by a guard with Zach Fulton in 2020 with the Houston Texans. Um, the worth noting that the one of the players I compared Mayfield to in terms of what I thought Mayfield's potential ceiling was in the NFL was Brian Winters. And in his rookie season in 2013, while making the transition from a college tackle to an NFL guard, he did give up 10 sacks that year. So it's not unheard of that a player like Jalen Mayfield can struggle early in his career. But in addition to those 11 sacks, Mayfield also gave up 21 hits, which was without a doubt the worst of any offensive lineman in that 12 year data set, let alone a guard. And so when you add in the sacks and hits, that's 32 sacks and hits given up that again, that was the worst. The next closest player was Mitchell Schwartz who gave up 30 in his second NFL season back in 2013 with the Browns. Uh, and we know Mitchell Schwartz eventually was able to turn it around and become one of the better right tackles in the league. Uh, but it's not unheard of for tackles to give up a lot more sacks and hits because they're facing premium pass rushers for guards. Giving up that many sacks and hits is particularly unheard of. The second most in that 12 year data set that we're talking about was Hugh Thornton former Falcons legend who gave up 23 combined sacks and hits back in 2013 with the Colts. And when you look at several of the worst guards in the league over that 12 year data set, uh, when looking at the combined sacks and hits that they gave up, you know, for a lot of years, it was like 17 or so sacks. And the fact that Mayfield gave up 32 tells you essentially he was twice as bad as what is typically bad uh, for, you know, the NFL's worst guard when it comes to giving up that amount of plays. And so I say all that not to necessarily pick on Mayfield, but to give the sort of context of how bad a year that he had so that when I'm adamant or as adamant as I am, that you're going to hear me on the rest of today's episode, as well as in the coming weeks and or months that the Falcons cannot go into next season with Jalen Mayfield as uh, the starting left guard, you understand where that is coming from. Do I think Mayfield can improve upon this season? Yes. Do I think the Falcons should have absolute confidence and faith that he will? No. Um, and you know, as I've said several times now on the podcast, I do feel like Jalen Mayfield was kind of set up to fail by this regime. You know, he was brought in, you know, to make that switch from a right tackle to left guard, which is not an easy switch. And, and this is another lesson for those of you that assume that, you know, college offensive linemen changing positions, uh, in, in the NFL is an easy or automatic change that 
anybody can make. That is not true. This is just further proof of that. But the Falcons brought him in, and then rather than keeping him at left guard due to injuries to McGarry and Gano during OTAs, he started playing with right tackle, and he didn't make the switch back to left guard until midway through training camp, basically I think the fourth week of training camp. And so from that point on, he basically had four weeks uh, of working at the left guard position to get ready uh, for the regular season where he was going to face some of the top interior defensive linemen in the league. Uh, And he clearly was not ready for that challenge. And no, I don't necessarily prescribe to the theory that the Falcons always intended Josh Andrews to start. And then that broken hand that Andrews suffered the week before the season led to them have to shift gears at the last second. I do think the Falcons brought in Andrews to be the insurance policy in the event that Mayfield didn't win the competition there. But I do think the Falcons always intended from the time they drafted Jalen Mayfield, that they expected him to win that competition. Um, But then the fact that they were ready to go with Josh Andrews showed you that they kind of knew that he wasn't necessarily ready. But then when Andrews broke his hand, they were basically like, oh, screw it. And let's throw Mayfield to the Wolves anyway. And obviously we saw what happened. Uh, And so to me, the disaster that was Jalen Mayfield's rookie season is not necessarily his fault. I put that squarely on Arthur Smith and or Terry Fontenot uh, for not necessarily having a good plan and or strategy for getting him ready for the season and not really having a better insurance policy than Josh Andrews, who a year ago was one of the worst pass protecting guards in the NFL. Uh, And so the Falcons were stuck kind of going with Jalen Mayfield for 17 weeks that most NFL teams typically would have abandoned shipped after like a month or so. And it's interesting because my opinion on Jalen Mayfield is basically unchanged from where it was the day after we drafted him, right? Like I said, then that he was probably a three-year project and the timetable for him to get to become a good NFL, uh, capable NFL offensive lineman is not a timetable that meshes with Matt Ryan's timetable here in Atlanta. And that remains to be my opinion. Uh, And I also compared his floor in addition to talking about his ceiling being Brian Winters, a player that struggled early in his career and then eventually turned into a competent NFL uh, starter. But Jalen Mayfield's floor to me was Drew Samia, which was a player that really struggled and was the worst guard in the NFL for the first month of the 2020 season with the Minnesota Vikings. And we kind of saw Mayfield, as I said, have, you know, 17 games of that rather than just four or five, like we saw for Samia. And like we see for a lot of players, like again, Josh Andrews really was awful for the Jets in 2020, but he basically only started like five or six games. And that was basically a last resort for the Jets, not necessarily a plan A or a plan B, whatever you want to categorize it. So, uh, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more about what the Falcons need to do to upgrade over Jalen Mayfield. I do think he is still somewhat salvageable as a player long-term over say a four or five year time span, but not necessarily on the two year time span where we're really looking like this team needs to upgrade their offensive line play. And we'll get into that as we continue today's locked on Falcons podcast guys. But again, I want to thank you guys for making locked on Falcons your first listen. And of course, always make sure you subscribe to the locked on Falcons YouTube channel. I know a lot of you guys don't check out the YouTube on a daily basis or whatever the case may be, but you know, it doesn't hurt to still subscribe. Uh, and, and, and boost those numbers. And then I know a lot of you guys are watching this show without actually subscribing. So make sure you subscribe to the Locked on Falcons YouTube channel, uh, which you make your first listen each and every day. So, you know, when we talk about, you know, upgrading the Falcons offensive line and road grading or whatever the case may be, you know, I, I can't help but thinking about, you know, roads and traveling and how much gas you put in your car. And of course, you know, that can really add up over time. 
particularly for those of you that are Atlanta natives and are stuck in that bumper to bumper traffic. Uh, and so you may want to save every time you go fill up at the pump. And of course you can do that now with a new app called get upside and you can get cash back for every gallon of gas that you put in your vehicle. And there's no catch. It's all free. All you got to do is just go to the app store or Google play and download the free get upside app, go to any of the eligible gas stations. There's thousands across the country near you fill up, uh, claim the offer and they'll put money into your account. And then you can cash out anytime you like with direct payments into your bank account, PayPal, or do what I do and get them on Amazon gift cards. But now when you sign up with get upside and open an account, you can use our special promo code touchdown and you'll get a bonus 25 cents back on your first fill up on top of whatever that cash back payment is for your local gas station. So don't pay full price at the pump anymore. Download the free get upside app and use the promo code touchdown. When you sign up, that's get upside promo code touchdown to start saving every time you fill up. So we had Dave Choate on the Falcons, uh, podcast this last week talking about the Falcons priorities this offseason and, and trying to get two upgrades along the offensive line, potentially at left guard center or right tackle. And Dave seemed to express a lot more optimism that the Falcons will try for the center and right tackle position than the left guard position. And I understand where Dave is coming from with that sentiment because the conventional wisdom in the NFL is, you know, you, you roll with your guys and you move on from their guys. And in the case of this regime, Jalen Mayfield is their guy. Drew Dahlman potentially is their guy, but Matt Hennessy and, and Kayla McGarry are not their guys. And so of course it would make sense based off of that conventional wisdom uh, that you would uh, essentially move on uh, from those guys, particularly McGarry uh, and enroll with Mayfield. But I sit here and think that would be a massive, massive mistake because we've sat here and watched previous regimes of the Falcons, the most recent regime led by Thomas Dimitrov and company make this same mistake by trusting solely in their ability to coach up their guys. Uh, And we've watched it blow up in their faces time and time again, whether it's on the offensive line going back years when they let go of Harvey Dahl and believed fully for the next couple of years that Garrett Reynolds would solve their right guard issues. Peter Kahn's would solve their center uh, positions once they moved on from Todd McClure. And we saw that did not work. And, you know, they let Harvey Dahl walk in 2011 and it wasn't until 2019 when the Falcons finally got Chris Lindstrom to solidify that right guard position nine years went by Uh, another recent example that I've used a number of times on this podcast is Vic Beasley, where the Falcons continually doubled down on their ability to coach up Vic Beasley. And, and that led uh, to, you know, mistakes, compounding mistakes year after year that we're still paying for today in 2022, beginning in 2018, when they doubled down on, on their ability to coach up Vic Beasley and then did it again in 2019. And then when that blew up in their face, they went out and spent a whole bunch of money on Dante Fowler. That blew up on their face. Uh, and now we're in that current predicament where we still need to address the pass rush. Uh, and it stems from their, you know, complacency and inaction going all the way back to that 2018 season because they believed that they could coach up Vic Beasley. And I see a similar situation potentially for the Falcons where they sit here and they go, oh, doesn't matter. Jalen Mayfield had a historically bad season. He'll be all right. We'll get him right. We'll we'll figure this whole thing out. And we could be having this conversation years down the road uh, where we're still uh, wondering about this left guard position, all because the Falcons refuse to upgrade that position. And I use, you know, the Dimitrov era as a example of a bad management on the part uh, of a team that we're all very familiar with. And I've continually contrasted that 
with other situations like we saw in Baltimore, Ozzie Newsom, a good general manager, a player, a person that Terry Fonto reportedly looks up to as a model for how you run your organization. And there is absolutely a lesson in there. And I've used this example a dozen times and I will continue to use it to hammer this point home. When you go back to that 2012 draft where they used their top selection, the Ravens, that is on Courtney Upshaw to hoping that he would be the tag team partner with Terrell Suggs that season. Terrell Suggs got injured. The, of course, the Ravens went to the Super Bowl, but as the year unfolded, even with Suggs being hurt, they realized that only made it more evident that Upshaw's limitations as a pass rusher uh, became more evident due to the fact that they lost their best pass rusher in Suggs. And rather than sitting there going, hey, man, he was our top pick. We're going to coach him up. We'll get him right. All these various things. The Ravens said, nah, forget that. We're going out there. If we have an opportunity to upgrade this position, we're going to do it. And they did so with Elvis Dumerville. And that was the best pass rush that the Ravens had basically in the post, you know, Brian Billick era um, when it came to that defense. Um, and so like you look at that situation and the Falcons to me have a golden opportunity to do a similar thing. And from my perspective, you know, this regime's credibility is on the line when it comes to this left guard position, right? You know, I've heard other people say that, you know, this regime is going, their legacy is going to be whether or not they hit on the quarterback selection. And I sit here and I go, yeah, that's probably true. But like to me, their credibility is based off of their ability to find an upgrade at the left guard position. Like finding a good quarterback is extremely hard. Very few teams have a ton of success doing that. It's you're just kind of you just kind of luck into one, right? And if you can't even find a better option than uh Jalen Mayfield at the left guard position going into next season, which to me is basically like the bare minimum that this team should be able to achieve this offseason. How can I be confident that you're going to be able to luck your way into, or whatever the case may be, into finding the right answer at the long-term quarterback position? So to me, this is really about their legacy. Um, and like, I look at the situation and there's one clear cut option a uh, great option for the Falcons this off season, you know, like I'm not even asking the team to go out there and get like the Quentin Nelson this off season. Right. You know, like we go from the, what the 66, 66th best guard in the league in Jalen Mayfield this past year, according to PFF, like all I'm really, can we get to the 46th best guard? Like that's, that's all it takes. You know what I'm saying? Just like a, kind of a, a functional middle of the pack guard is all we need. But like there isn't the 18th best guard in the league is just waiting out there in free agency. And that is, of course, James Daniels. I will continue to pound the table for the Falcons to sign James Daniel, just like I did last year when they I wanted them to go out there and get Joe Tooney. He, of course, went to the Chiefs for a very expensive contract. But like James Daniels, to me, is just so clearly heads and heels above the rest of the potential options available. And I will probably wind up setting myself up for disappointment once again, just like I did last year with Joe Tooney. Uh, but I will continue to pound this table for the coming weeks and or months, hoping that the Falcons do that. He checks all the boxes, scheme fit. He's young. He's only going to be 25 in week two of next year. That's when he turns 25, uh, as opposed to some of these other options that the Falcons could wind up signing, uh, who are mostly going to be on the wrong side of 30. So are more sort of stopgap options, not to mention, it doesn't seem like he's going to be that expensive based off of the various websites, uh, tracking his potential market value. PFF is the highest one I've seen at 10 million a year. But over the cap.com has them at like around six million a year. Uh, Spotrack has them at around seven and a half million a year. And that's a bargain compared to, you know, what Joe Tooney wound up getting last year, which was 16 million a year. So uh, he's not as good as Joe Tooney, but like he's 
potentially a top 15 guard uh, in this league. And you can get him for almost like half the price that you would have had to pay for Joe Tooney. So to me, like this is a home run uh, waiting to happen for the Atlanta Falcons. And if they do not land James Daniels or at least a competent option going into next year, um, I just, I can't, I can't do it with this team. And, and coach Singletary says it best. Can't do it. So like I, I sit there and I go like, you know, it's not to say that we're, we're done. Jalen Mayfield is this bus and unsalvageable. I think Jalen Mayfield can still turn into a good player. Again, I've used the Brian Winters example as a player that started really poorly and then eventually turned it around in like years three and four. Right. And that's still possibility for Jalen Mayfield. Now from year one to year two, again, it's not impossible, but it would be virtually unprecedented for a player to be as bad as Jalen Mayfield was to go to be some level of competence into year two. Now, year three or year four, again, uh, not impossible, probably improbable, but certainly not impossible. And so to me, I would put that on the back burner as far as Jalen Mayfield is concerned in the future. But if this regime goes into this season believing that Jalen Mayfield is going to make this massive jump from year one to year two, then again, their, their credibility is completely, um, completely out the window. Can't do it. So let's move on to the center position where we are potentially looking at upgrades. Um, and, you know, when we're talking about the left guard position, if we're not going with James Daniels, there's going to be a lot of stopgap options. The center position is, a, again, really a, a stopgap option. And there's really only one player out there that's potentially that option. And that's Ben Jones. It's Ben Jones or bust. And what's interesting about Ben Jones is similar to James Daniels. These websites aren't necessarily valuing him at a high number, right? Pro football focus and over the cap value him at around six to $7 million a year. Um, and so for me, like at that price, if we're basically going to be in a position where we can rent Ben Jones for two years at around $12 million, that to me is worth it, right? That to me is worthwhile investment that you can get Ben Jones to solidify the center spot and what is probably going to be Matt Ryan's last year uh, so that he doesn't go out like a punk. Uh, and then you can potentially have him hold over in 2023 uh, to help transition some young rookie quarterback or whatever the case may be in that year. So that makes perfect sense to me. Um, but I could also understand that the team decided to pass on that. And again, a lot of that depends on price tag, like $12 million to me is a perfect amount that I'm willing to pay for that. But if we're talking about like $20 million over two years, then I would be a lot more skeptical, be a little bit more frugal in that regard, and probably be a little bit more willing to just roll with Matt Hennessy and, and Drew Dahlman and their competition and hope that by the time we get to 2023, if and when we're making a transition uh, to a young quarterback, that those guys have proven themselves and, and made enough gains by then that we're not necessarily worried about uh, that young guy having uh, an inexperienced and an incapable center as that guy makes the transition. Uh, to the league. So, you know, I do think there is a halfway decent chance that uh, Drew Dahlman will, could and would be the starting center for the Falcons in week one of 2022. If he does make a, a significant year one, a year two jump. And as I said earlier, I went back and I was a little bit more impressed with Drew Dahlman's rookie season than I was initially watching with that second pass of film. So the other problem position for the Falcons is of course the right tackle position. Um, and in free agency, there isn't a clear cut upgrade over, uh, Kayla McGarry. You can get sort of a one year sort of stopgap, whether that's a Riley Reef or a Trent Brown or Morgan Moses or Dennis Kelly or something like that. But, you know, you're still going to be back at it probably in 2023, looking for more of a long-term option. So if you're going to find a long-term solution this off season, obviously that's going to come 
in the draft, uh, given that Kayla McGarry uh, probably is going to be playing his last year in Atlanta. Most indications are that unless he can really put it together this upcoming season, uh, but he's likely to be in a contract year because he's probably not going to get his fifth year option, or I will say probably certainly not going to get his fifth year option picked up this offseason. So 2022 will be the final year of his contract. Um, and so you may be in a position to draft a, a rookie tackle this upcoming draft that can either come in and challenge him right away or more likely uh, be a guy that you can sort of pencil in to be his heir apparent for 2022 and beyond. Um, and while this is a particularly stronger offensive tackle class than, you know, certainly the, on the interior from what I have seen, I'm not convinced that the Falcons are currently in a position right now, as far as the draft goes, where they're going to get one of the top guys. Like, I, I feel like there's like six or seven guys that at least based off of what I have seen and seems to be the consensus that people are sort of looking at as potential top 50 picks in this draft. Um, but I think, you know, several of those guys, if not all of those guys could be off the board by the time we get to the Falcons 43rd overall pick in the top of round two. We know about the big three at the top of the draft, whether that's Alabama's Evan Neal, NC State's Ike Aquano, and Mississippi State's Charles Cross. And I do think all three of those guys are potential options for the Falcons at pick number eight, but we won't get into that on today's episode. We'll save that for the mock draft Mondays that we have like 11 of uh, between, you know, the Super Bowl and the draft. Um, but I think the next three guys, which seem to be the consensus, which is Northern Iowa's Trevor Pinning, uh, Minnesota's Daniel Falele, and Central Michigan's Bernard Raymond, are typically, you know, OTs four through six. Uh, and all three of those guys are going to be at the senior bowl. And I heard Jim Nagy talking about this on a athletic football podcast recently. And I tend to agree with him. He sort of, uh, talked about how Eric Fisher back in 2013, which was another sort of weak uh, draft class because it was weak at the quarterback position at the top of the draft, went into the senior bowl being projected as a late first round pick and then came out of the senior bowl, wound up being the number one overall pick. Now I'm not expecting any of these three guys to make that sort of jump in the senior bowl, because again, you have the big three at the top of the draft that will probably block them from shooting up that high, but they could certainly come out of the senior bowl week of practice, having solidified themselves and not as just borderline first, second round guys, as I think they currently are projected to be, but really solidify themselves as, uh, you know, first round locks uh, if they have good weeks of practice. And especially you factor in the reality that the, that several teams picking in the twenties of this draft, pretty much all the teams picking from like pick 20 to 29 are, are teams that could uh, use an upgrade at the tackle position. So that would be a prime spot, prime real estate for some of those teams to start to cherry pick some of these guys that I think a lot of Falcon fans are hoping are going to fall to the Falcons at pick 43. So I, I sit here and I go like the situation for the Falcons, they're not guaranteed to be able to find that tackle is basically the point. I'm trying to make. And so I think that's probably going to lead them to re-signing Jason Sprague, who, who is an unrestricted free agent uh, to be that s swing tackle and potential insurance policy in, in the event that they don't find themselves in a position to take a tackle in this draft. And, and I think at least based off of what I have seen, the drop off after you get after that, you know, the top six or so guys to the next group of guys is pretty substantial and haven't really seen too many other guys after these top six tackles that I think are probably plug and play that can come in and really challenge Caleb McGarry right away and or guys that I would feel confident about starting in 2020 as early as 2023 as long-term, you know, right tackles in this position. So 
I feel like the circumstances are forcing the Falcons to probably bring back Spriggs as a swing tackle and, and just hope that the draft falls a certain way. Uh, as for Josh Andrews, the other impending free agent among this group, uh, I do not think he's going to be back. It's a toss up at this point in time, but I would be skeptical of him in large part due to the fact that Kobe Gossett, who is an exclusive rights free agent and so thus should be back this year. The fact that Gossett surpass Andrews on the depth chart and on the inactive list uh, on a weekly basis makes Andrews even more expendable. And you couple that with, again, probably a false hope at this point in time that the Falcons will add a left guard. This off season makes Andrews even more expendable. So I think, you know, if you can bring back Spriggs and sign a veteran guard, you probably have nine offensive linemen, uh, at least ready to go into the season. And therefore you still have the option and the flexibility that if the best player available at some point in the draft, whether that's in round two or round three um, is there, um, you can take them, but your hand won't necessarily have to be forced where you're stuck reaching for a player because you, you desperately need a third tackle uh, to draft this year. But ideally, if we're talking about who the nine offensive linemen should be, you know, three of those guys, in my opinion, should be Ben Jones, should be James Daniels, and potentially one of these draft picks. And that would be the ideal scenario and outcome for this Falcons team uh, to come out of this offseason with three of those guys, uh, you know, one of the top six or seven tackles, uh, James Daniels and Ben Jones. And that to me would be a clear cut upgrade. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the negativity, the pessimism <laughs> that you're probably tired of hearing on this podcast about this team's future suddenly gets a lot different because it's like, hmm, is this now an offensive line that we can be proud of that given how Arthur Smith seems to want to play offense, this is a unit that could really be, uh, you know, the type of unit that could facilitate this offense, you know, really clicking in, in year two. So that's what I'm hoping to see from this team. And so like, if this team can do something comparable to that, that, you know, doesn't necessarily have to be that strategy, but obviously, you know, as, as someone who uh, seemingly seemed to know a little bit more about, you know, Jalen Mayfield's NFL prognosis, I'm going to, and Joe Tooney, as well as so many other horrible decisions if I could make on the offensive line. I'm going to sit here and be as cocky as I can be and, and feel like, you know, I do a better job evaluating offensive linemen than this regime has done in recent years. So um, that's why I can sit here and say that. But um, that's where we're going to leave it, guys, on this extra long episode. Obviously, we have a lot to say about the offensive line position, and we'll just sort of see what happens this offseason. Of course, if you have any feedback that you want to provide on anything I discussed on today's episode, you can do so on Twitter or Facebook at Lockdown Falcons via email at LockdownFalcons at mail.com, or you can leave a comment here on the Lockdown Falcons YouTube channel. Tomorrow's episode, we will probably be getting into the edge group as we continue our year-end positional reviews. Uh, we we'll, should have a guest later in the week as well to give his thoughts on the Falcons upcoming season. Uh, and you know, that will do it for us here guys. And of course I always have recommendations for what your second listen should be after you tune out of this locked on Falcons podcast. Why not check out the locked on beds podcast where handicapping Lee Sterling um, handicapping expert Lee Sterling is giving you his daily picks, his blood specials in his lock of the day and gets Lee's reaction to the conference championship games. Again, recording this before the outcomes of those games are known. So uh, check out what Lee has to say about the potential Super Bowl matchups uh, by checking out the Locked On Bets podcast, free and available on the same podcast platforms that you can find Locked On Falcons. Appreciate it, guys. Till then. Can't do it. <laughs>